All right, folks, don't go away. Our extended interview with Zaretta Hammond is coming up after this short commercial break. Welcome back, everyone, to Ed's Not Dead. We're excited for our interview with Zaretta Hammond. Casey, tell us about Miss Hammond. Zaretta Hammond, she is the author of the best-selling book, Culturally Responsive Teaching and the Brain. Zaretta is a former writing teacher turned equity freedom fighter. You never heard that before, but it's awesome. Over 19 years ago, Zaretta moved from supporting students in her classroom to supporting teachers who are committed to getting better results with their culturally and linguistically diverse students. Zaretta has trained instructional coaches, designed national seminars for teachers and school leaders, and is a regular presenter at national conferences for education. Zaretta's research revolves around literacy, vocabulary, development, and equity. She established and writes for the blog Ready for Rigor, number four, and is most widely known at present for her most recent publication, Culturally Responsive Teaching in the Brain. Finally, Zaretta is a proud parent of two young adult children, both of whom she taught to read before they went to school. She resides in Berkeley, California with her husband and family, so let's get into it. Yes, let's. To start us off, thanks again, Zaretta, for, for being on the show with us tonight. We're so excited to have you and, and to talk with you tonight about uh, rigor in the classroom and equity for, for all students. Um, the first question that I have for you is, what, what is your definition of implicit bias? What does it look like? What does it sound like in the classroom? How do you define that for folks when you're, when you're talking about uh, cultural responsiveness in the classroom? Yeah, I think this is such an important question, and, and, and I'll answer this in kind of a roundabout way, because when I'm working with teachers or coaches or leaders, what I try to help them understand is implicit bias, right, the individual's, um, you know, prejudices or the brain's biases are not always the biggest issue in relationship to equity. What is more damaging is this idea of uh, deficit thinking. And deficit thinking kind of flows out of the dominant narrative when we talk about marginalization and it leads to implicit bias. So how does that show up in the classroom? The teacher does not believe because of deficit thinking that may be held in the larger society that certain kids aren't going to be good at math. Right. Or if you speak a second language, then you are not capable of higher order thinking and consequently makes decisions, instructional decisions, based on that deficit view. So that's actually more damaging than any implicit bias. Yeah, we, we, it's so funny, I mean, I don't know, funny, but we, we've heard that over and over again through the course of these conversations in the equity series. It's deficit thinking, deficit thinking, deficit thinking, and, you know, getting away from that. This kid can't do that, but really what, okay, what can this kid do? Let's work on that and let's build on that. And, yes, uh, and, and, and go, ahead, go ahead, go ahead, Zaretta. I was going to say the other thing is implicit bias has us focusing on, you know, let's stop a certain practice or let's stop having, you know, a negative view of people of color or kids who speak a second language. Uh, and a lot of schools have had these kind of hard conversations or courageous conversations. One of the things I try to help leaders, teachers, and coaches think about is 
not only what do we want to say no to, that's the focus on deficit thinking and implicit bias, but what do we want to say yes to? How do we help kids regain their natural confidence? So for me, culturally responsive teaching is about looking in the classroom and finding those places where students aren't even noticing that they're excelling. They are so focused on what they can't do because they've internalized that. So a culturally responsive educator's task in many ways is to notice and name and help the student regain that natural confidence. What are we saying yes to versus this kind of ongoing conversation about implicit bias? Like we could just go get rid of that. Well, you can't. You can start to shift your deficit thinking, though. And a district or a school can actually have counter narratives, right? Listening for the common things that teachers say about those kids and then have a counter narrative. Here's an example of a counter narrative. A lot of students are English learners and we have a tendency to kind of dumb things down or they can't do that because they don't know uh, English well enough. Well, the reality is they don't have a deficit. They actually have a superpower. And all we're doing is kind of holding space until they grow into that superpower, which is to be bilingual. And it would be powerful if we started languaging it like you have a superpower that I'm helping you grow. And do you think, on that note, do you, wh- how much do you focus on or do you, do you think uh, leaders should focus on the precision of language of, of how teachers talk about kids and what they bring to the table? How much does that lead into what you have studied and what, how you work with teachers and leaders? I do think for leaders it's really important for messaging. And that, that's why those counter narratives, right? What are the things that you usually hear being said in the teacher's lounge or sometimes even at the staff meeting? And we usually hear a teacher say something very, you know, negative or certainly deficit oriented. And most of us just like sit there like, oh, no, she didn't just say that, did she? Well, I just I and- actually I actually just avoid the staff lounge. <laughs> But I think in my, in hindsight, on that note, and I'm so glad you brought that up, but like I remember in my school, when I was in a school-based uh, position, I physically avoided the, school, the staff lounge because I didn't want to be around it. But, but now that I'm kind of diving a little deeper into your work and, and some other, and like Curtis Linton's work and Courageous Conversations, we collectively need to call that that kind of behavior and that kind of language and put it out on the table because it, 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 it shouldn't be used and it shouldn't be okay to be used. Absolutely. But here's the rub. When you confront an adult, they get defensive. So I try to train coaches that I work with to actually listen for those statements and then actually think about how they reframe, refute, or redirect. Or there's a technique in which I teach them how to do that. So they're not confronting. They're not calling anybody out because sometimes that is kind of like a moral on a moral uh, stance. I'm going to call you out on that behavior. But that just creates tension versus I encourage leaders and coaches to roll three deep with research so that you are able, after having set the counter narrative for your school or for the PLC you're working in, that when a teacher says something counter to that, you can actually say, but the research says. And then it's not you confronting that teacher. Then it's like the research grounds. Right. Up. You're stating you're so basically you're a, using you're using your basically you're using data and research to say that 
this is actually a practice that is effective for students. Absolutely. Or it's a view we shouldn't hold. So even if it's not a practice, if a teacher says something negative about a group of students, then this is where the research says, no, actually, you know, that's an asset for them. Right. Or a lot of teachers will say, oh, those kids don't come with any assets. No, the research actually says that even if you're not totally bilingual yet, then that's still an asset because you are actually having higher executive function if you are working on becoming bilingual. So there's all this research that counteracts those deficit statements rather than calling them out on a moral uh, premise, right? Oh, you're just wrong. You shouldn't talk about kids like that. I think that's where we kind of get into tensions in our, our, you know, our school community. Right. Yeah. And that's that, this is Robbie Zaretta. And that, um, that reminds me of kind of my first rule of leadership when I work with new principals, which is try as hard as you can not to meet extreme thinking with extreme response. And that's what I hear you saying mm-hmm. about, about, about your work and about equity work in schools. Um, yeah. So I wanted to ask you, uh, back to leaders and coaches, because that's a that's a lot of the work you do. If you could expand a little bit more on what leaders and coaches, and from my perspective specifically, principals do to identify implicit bias in our teachers' practices and actively work against them. Yeah, I think the the leader's job in many ways is again noticing and naming. So the kinds of walkthroughs you do. So knowing that there is a certain type of reproductive practice, right? If those kids, meaning black and brown kids, if they're always the lowest performing kids or they're always uh, not given uh, more challenging work because they haven't yet completed or they're being penalized because they haven't turned in homework, you don't get to do that fun project-based thing because you didn't turn in homework, then those are ways in which we see that bias acting, you know, uh, being acted out in the classroom. So being able to have those sorts of practices articulated so that as a staff, everybody is clear. And then when that leader's doing that walkthrough and starts to see those practices, there's an agreed upon um, orientation. There's agreed upon practice that we can talk about. Mm-hmm. And it opens the conversation versus, you know, you're being prejudiced against those kids. So being able to have that walkthrough that is rooted in the instructional core, the teacher, the student, the content, knowing that anytime the student is underperforming, there's something we have to interrogate in those two other areas as well. All right. So I've got to take you back to your days as a writing and literacy teacher when you were in the classroom. Um, I was at a I was at a training today and and there was a the, the topic was fascinating in that there was kind of a message to uh leaders about spending too much time meeting kids exactly where they are for example let's say reading so you're teaching at their instructional level versus moving them to their frustrational level and and putting them in rigorous text where they really have to struggle to make meaning of text so um, I, I want to hear your take on on rigor in the classroom and specifically with literacy. Yeah. Have we differentiated too much to meet kids' needs in, in meeting them where they are? Or what's the what's the how do we thread the needle on that? 
Yeah, I, I really appreciate that question because I think one of the things I see often is we have a tendency to go uh, to one extreme or the other. Either we're throwing the kids in the deep end of rigor, like let's just step the game up and they, they are going to have to figure it out, challenging text, and they are in their frustration level. And what we know is if indeed they become too frustrated, the brain starts to shut down, too much cortisol. The other extreme is um, let's meet them where they are. Well, if they are, you know, always scaffolded, over scaffolded at where they are, then they are going to be at their uh, independent level. So no dendrites will grow. There's no brain growth. There's no acceleration that happens. I think you have to get kids ready for rigor. You can't just throw them in the deep end. You actually have to give them tools. And this is one of the things that distinguishes students that are dependent learners Mm -hmm. because of inequity Mm -hmm. from independent learners. And that our job as equity-focused educators is to get kids ready for rigor. So we have to meet them where they are, but very quickly stretch them into their ZPD. And that's what Vygotsky talks about. Productive struggle is what grows intellective capacity. Dendrites literally grow when we are a little stretched. And so helping teachers understand what that means to get kids ready for rigor. So let's stay with literacy for a minute. We know that our kids don't have word wealth, Uh but we don't have rigorous word study. It doesn't have to take forever, you know, 15 minutes, three times a week, building students word knowledge, word curiosity, morphology, right? So ways that they're interacting with their disciplinary literacy so that when they're now in the text, they have those tools helping them kind of figure things out. There are a variety of things that we could do to help them get ready for rigor. Most teachers don't know how to do that. They're focused on either their content or they're going to over-scaffold because the student, it's too, uh, it's too high in terms of complexity for kids. Okay, that, that is great. And, and Zaretta, you, you take the cake. You're the first sociocultural ZPD reference we've had on Ed's Not Dead. <laughs> So we, we love that you got into Vygotsky. Okay, go ahead, Mr. Krabs. No, I just had a follow-up on that. So you, you talk about kind of like the explicit instruction in terms of um, vocabulary. Uh, so, so I work and have worked in, in middle schools, and I think if you would ask most middle school teachers, they would say, oh, well, you know, they should know that, or I can't go back. So I guess the question is, like, is it still appropriate to be teaching those skills to students at a certain age, or is there kind of like a cutoff where that transforms? I don't know what that transforms to, but yeah. you know, I guess, can you keep doing that for, you know, until they get it? You really have to, here's what we know. People talk about being, getting kids to be college and career ready. Well, what we know is to be college ready, you have to be reading 250 words per minute. So you are going to have to continue to up your ability to read and comprehend at faster rate. The only way you can really do that is by continuing to increase your vocabulary. Vocabulary development does not stop at middle school. It continues. So what we have, one of the inequities that we have is we somehow think kids got that in second or third grade. Or we think that looks like, here's a list of the words, go look them up, put them in a sentence. When we know robust word study 
in which kids are interacting with the words. They're looking at word parts and word meaning and actually playing with that. And, and here's the, re- the reality. Our kids, particularly black and brown urban kids, they already have word play. You could just see that natural genius in terms of playing with words and meaning. This is what Hamilton was about. Right. That ability to take that, that voluminous work about Alexander Hamilton and to actually now create lyrics that still conveyed the power of that. That is no small feat, but that is wordplay. That is word study. Yeah. And right. somehow we discount what kids come in with that natural genius and we don't leverage it to accelerate their word wealth. Okay. Can I, can I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go totally off script and the, and the, the boys are going to get irritated with <laughs> me, but um, <laughs> you spend, you spend a lot of time K-12 working with teachers and leaders Um I'm I I have concerns about the way we structure schools and how that impacts equity and any words of wisdom on as it relates to equity and cultural proficiency in the kinds of institutional structures we have like whether oh, whether yeah. mi, whether middle school should be departmentalized or should we be grouping homogeneously or heterogeneously for for English those kinds of things could you just weigh in for a minute yeah. on that Zaretta and there there is this is Robbie's I, pet I, project it's, so it's, it's it's my dissertation Zaretta so you're helping me <laughs> okay this is personal and professional yeah exactly um, but here's the thing I think it is really important I was having this very conversation earlier with the coaches you know they are very equity minded very social justice oriented right. and they were like we just want to get to it and I was trying to help them understand we have gotten enamored with talking about equity in this as this kind of sexy buzzed conversation about implicit bias and but the reality is in order to actually get to more equitable outcomes, you also have to look at how are we using time? Yes. How are we structuring? Uh, what are the routines in a classroom? If I was a leader, I'd want to go into a classroom and actually just look at the routine. So when kids come in, do they know what to do? As they are not just in terms of classroom management, but in terms of the social cognitive norms of the classroom. And so being able to think about how we restructure time, let's talk about formative assessment. We know kids won't improve until they can get good, timely, corrective feedback that is still affirming of their capacity. This is what Claude Steele talks about as the antidote to stereotype threat. But I look into a lot of classrooms and I don't see structures for formative assessment or for giving feedback. So a lot of the things that actually would create more equitable outcomes just aren't sexy you know nobody wants to sit around and talk about time you know and i'll is, right? is we don't i was to say is, is a ahead. point is a point to that you know over the course of kind of our series of interviews here one thing that's come up is they don't that's not taught in schools like in college preparatory schools and education schools they don't teach you how to maximize your time and be efficient and put structures in place management formative assessment and or otherwise and that's one thing that I think we've all kind of like, wow, that's interesting, is that teachers really come in and there's no, there's been no explicit instruction for first-year teachers from their college prep programs about how to, how to do those things. Absolutely. But here's my point. It then has to find its way onto the equity agenda. So all the things that are on an equity agenda 
aren't about implicit bias. And this is where we've gone a bit astray, that we want to spend all our time only talking about implicit bias. When you can have a teacher who is like, I'm down with it, I'm social justice minded, but still is not putting the structures and the routines in place that actually help her students become independent learners. Yeah, and, and so I... Just get rid of... Go ahead, Jaretta. Oh, I was just going to say getting rid of implicit bias and deficit thinking, what we say no to is not the same as knowing what we need to be saying yes to. I'm uh, very connected to what you're just talking about. Do you think, if you look at the history of public schools, they're kind of, it, it's basically catered to the, the white dominant culture. That, that Public schools in America are designed for the, the typical white male or white female student do you feel like we're almost fighting against the wind in some capacity when when the traditional structures are already in place all right so here's what i'm going to say which might sound a little controversial i think schools are doing just what they were designed to do and they weren't designed just for white males or you know white middle class kids they were designed to actually educate undereducate, miseducate children of color linguistically diverse students. Those students have to come into systems. Those systems, inequity by design, has at its core two things. Undermining the natural confidence of a student, so they internalize the idea that I'm stupid. Right. And underdeveloping their information processing skills. So we see students who have the blank stare when you try to ask them to do this higher order thinking. So the reality is schools are doing just what they're intended to do. So it's not even that schools started out to be the great equalizer. That's kind of what we've put on our equity agenda. But when we look at it, we're having the same problem. Look at the reading scores. There is no reason large numbers of students of color should be reading at such low levels. And what's really challenging to to you know, defend is the longer a student stays in a lot of urban districts, the further behind in reading they get. Right. So that you have some districts that are graduating students that read five grade levels behind. And it's documented in their uh, achievement data. And, and, and you, nobody's and, hair is on fire. And you, and you, well, well I don't have any hair, so I have nothing, <laughs> nothing's going to catch on fire. But um, I, it's certainly upsetting. And, and the, the link that I sent you earlier today, which was the, the research says that schools don't matter much. You, you're perf- you, I swear I didn't plant you to, to say that, but what are your, you got a chance to read it. What are your thoughts on, on what that, the research says about helping kids climb the economic ladder? You know- I, I believe it. I My children, and they chuckle because they are now adults, and I have always told them that you have to assign yourself. You have to find what your natural skills are, what you think your purpose on earth is, and you have to then build your life around cultivating that and that your economic growth in life will be because you're giving yourself in this way and the the, you know, Society responds by economic security. So for my children, I always came and made sure that I, um, for no reason at all, took them out of school for the day. And let's go to the movies. Let's go to the park. Because school is not where everything happens. And the degree to which sometimes it's better for the mental health of students if they're starting to internalize this deficit thinking that is being put upon them, that they need to be in other settings. Even my daughter now is at Harvard. She's a junior. And I tell her, I said, listen, you know, you don't have to get straight A's. 
even though she's pretty close to it, I'm like, you know, you need to be working for some bees and go do something else in life, right? This is about balance. Schools are not the great equalizer. I know some people will feel like that's blasphemy, but life is learned in other domains. What we have to do is help students be lifelong learners no matter where they are. But if they stay in school, the longer they stay in school, the longer that natural learner confidence is undermined. Our equity agenda has to be about that. I literally had that conversation today with a colleague where my experience in in just in high schools has been, it's almost like some some students feel like the, the love of learning has been just dragged out of them extinguished it's totally extinguished and it's and it's it's really a bummer from my perspective because as a middle school teacher you're you have to you have to go above and beyond to engage kids just because they're all over the place and 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 that's on us but they get to the high school level and it's it's just it's not that love of learning has been like you like you said robbie just extinguished and that's a i didn't say that crable said that oh (laughs) just kidding (laughs) it's true All right. Uh, go ahead, Zaretta. Just a really quick piece. This is where the neuroscience is so important. When we can actually get kids to increase their oxytocin and increase their dopamine, dopamine is the thing, that sticky, yummy, addictive brain chemical that makes us want to do hard things, that makes our brains want to gravitate towards figuring out. That is what makes learning magnetic. Mm-hmm. And if we can bring more of that in, then we can actually get kids' brains to turn on. But we're trying in these other ways that don't align with the neuroscience. Yeah, and I tell you what, next time that we get you on here, I, the more you talk about the neuroscience and the brain, I'm just like, man, I, that is an area of, of deficit for me. So maybe we'll just do a one where that's literally all we talk about and just ask you and pepper you with questions. Uh, Zaretta, this has been awesome. Um, it's been a great interview. I know that our, our listeners are going to walk away from hearing you knowing so much more. Uh, there's a bunch of things that you said that I feel like we need more time. I'm such an apologist or such a supporter of public education that – Schools are not the great equalizer. Just leaves me very sad. <laughs> um, yeah, but well, go ahead. Yeah. I, I was just going to say, yeah, we want it to be different. And listen, I'm working every day in them to make it different. Right. But I'm also a realist. Yeah, yeah, that's that's right, and that's where we need to start, right, by being realists. So, yeah. um, hopefully, we can get you on again. Good luck in all your work, and keep making such a difference. And thanks for agreeing to be on Ed's Not Dead. We'll we'll talk to you soon. Yes. Thank you all. Have all right. a great weekend. Thank Thanks, you Zaretta. so much. Well, boys, Zaretta was an amazing guest. Yeah, she was really good. Very knowledgeable and definitely expanded my thinking. I'm just glad that we were able to get her on the show. She's hard to <laughs> she's hard to, to schedule. I, I do feel like it was... Very popular. It was quite the get, Mr. Siddons. I'm proud of it. Yeah, you should be proud of it. Yeah. So there's a couple things I want to talk about. Okay, can I just say, though, one last thing? When she was talking, didn't you have that feeling like... You were sitting in the the most awesome professional development session, hearing someone speak that you just everything they say is meaningful. Yeah, but you got to ask questions. That's too. true. Yeah. That's that's yeah. the best part is yeah. that with these things, you can ask questions. You're like, hold on, wait a second. I would listen. We to, all read. I, we all read a lot and research a lot, but I always feel I, I di- you feel like you can never do enough yeah. because she was incredibly nice. I would listen to her lecture all the time. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I don't need to be in small groups. A direct instruction or just a straight oh, lecture? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> just total lecture. Straight up lecture. All right. Go ahead, Mr. Graves. No, the, what, the one thing um, 
And I'm gonna I'm gonna needle Casey a little bit All here. Right. <laughs> Cuz that's fun. Um no, but uh so, you know, last episode Casey had talked about calling out teachers in the teachers lounge that say stuff and uh you know, there was there's something You're in stupid. <laughs> the last episode. No, yeah. right now I did. No, you, you did before. You did, too. You did both. Oh, I did. Yeah, you yeah. did both. Uh, calling out seems to be a thing. Yeah. Well, we need. Yeah. Well, there's anyway. There's something about it where I, I didn't say anything. I just sat on it and stood because that's the best way to communicate with someone. About I was like I don't know about calling out. Like, is that really the best terminology? It's, it's I knew what you. Are crazy. you Irish? It's his <laughs> Do you bottle it up? Yeah. And, yeah. No, he bottles. Well, oh, there's up. some good mid- Midwestern roots in there that oh, really yeah. speak to Ohio. not Ohio. Yeah, not sharing any emotions <laughs> whatsoever. <laughs> so anyway, um, but she had an excellent point. She was kind of like, eh, it's not calling out. It's Refrain, refute, and redirect. And I was like, "That's a good." Yeah, I agree. That's a good, uh, you know, triumvirate there. In her in her book, she talks about fighting the fight or flight reflex in just that way. The the reptilian brain, the fight or flight. Rep- yeah, uh, it's that extreme thinking. Yep, yeah. yep. And and my option is to call it out because that's my fight or flight. I'm fighting that. But you, what you're saying is, and what Zaretta. Because you create tension. Says, I do create she, that's tension. That's what she said. It creates tension. It does create tension. Yeah. She's right. Sometimes tension's good, though. People need to have tense. Yeah. Tense feelings. Um, it, it reminds me of the our discussion on Reed College, which is when university students are behaving really badly, should a college respond in extreme ways? It makes the professors flight. Correct. Yeah. Um, so Casey's looking at me like he has no idea what, what I'm talking about. It was a conversation we had earlier this episode. Oh, remember? I definitely remember that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, the other thing that really stuck out to me is this idea of rigor and high expectations. I liked what she said, Casey. It, it hit home, I know, to you about routines, explicitly having teachers know how to institute routines. And I have to say – Teachers that I observed over the course of my career that were highly routinized in a positive way typically were teachers that also had very high expectations about how kids uh, their their kind of academic success skills. But the uh, but when you when you hear that when teachers initially hear that they think that it's like this dictatorial atmosphere and it does not have to be that way no it's teaching kids to take responsibility for themselves in the classroom and therefore take responsibility for their own learning mm-hmm. also know the expectations of what yeah. they're supposed to do yeah. right and in the term she used was was expanding the equity agenda and that really stuck out with me because yeah it's not just you know some of the bigger ideas or thoughts and the self-reflections you know, it's it's just little things in the classroom about being an excellent teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's all part of getting the most out of every kid. Mm-hmm. Mr. Sids, what got you? Uh, no, that I I agree with everything you all just said. <laughs> that was great. No, um, I I wanted to ask her what the question I didn't get to ask her was, and and maybe it's just too obvious. What are the dangers in letting those implicit biases remain un? Mm, unaddressed. Yeah, and you know what? Uh, that's a great question. And because, and I'm so, sorry to interrupt, no, but I'm ahead. just my my brain is turning slowly. So I'm thinking of a, of a school that is an underperforming school, and that's deficit thinking. A school that's not performing at what we expect a school to perform at, right? I think it's still deficit. It's still, yeah, yeah. Sorry, it's underperforming school. Anyway, <laughs> so it's a challenging school. They have high turnover. I feel like the 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 data will push teachers or that kind of atmosphere push, pushes teachers to try a million different things to engage students. 
So what about the schools that, you know, there's 2% of kids that are, are not meeting standard and everybody else is doing fine. Um, I, was, I think about the da- those those kind of that, that's what I'm talking about with the dangers of the implicit bias. What what is it? I don't know. I, I'm not really sure what I'm asking, but that's the question I wanted to ask her about. What are those dangers, and what do they look like in a school? Both types of schools. Yeah. Do we do we want to get into the last little bit at all? Uh, you- the, the the only thing I was going to sure, add to yeah. that that the thing that I was thinking about as a leader and as a former teacher, I wanted to ask her about. Um kind of your own a teacher's one's own metacognition when you're teaching what are kind of the markers that you should use that you're thinking about your thinking am i teaching equitably is what i just said somehow deficit thinking and the message that i just delivered to kids that's because i think that's also a place that we have to start is getting educators to kind of think about their thinking think about their emotions their beliefs their values when they're teaching so that they are kind of self-monitoring in their in their instruction and in their leadership. Um, I think sometimes we come a lot at it from an external kind of locus of control where really for each of us it begins in ourselves. Yeah, it does. But oftentimes we need someone else to highlight that for yeah, us absolutely. in the form of data or whatever it is. I, I, I had a conversation just this past week with a teacher – I when I when I take observation notes, I'm taking observation notes on who they are calling on, the names of the kids, and then I look at their data. And they they've get, I have their demographic data, and I, I say, you know, you called on your class has you know 16% students who are white, 22% who are African American, so on and so forth. And then I compare that data with who they called on, and showing them that data and having them just reflect on it in general without without like any kind of strings attached. I think it's a powerful. It, yeah. it creates a powerful picture for them. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, that was a big time interview. Thanks again to Zaretta Hammond for joining Ed's Not Dead. We certainly learned a lot. Listeners, we think you probably did as well. Fellas, this is the end of the show. It has been a great show, dare I say. What are you guys doing this weekend? Oh, I caught you on guard with <laughs> I was that. Like, Jesus. Yeah, I'm going to Six Flags. Are you really? No, I'm not. <laughs> okay, I'm not. it's a little cold for Six Flags. <laughs> Sarah's the wife's birthday, and her twin sister is actually the same day as hers. So weird. Really? Yeah, no. So we're celebrating the birthday. Do do either do either one of you care what I have coming up in a week? Oh, that's right. Yes. You got the dissertation yes. coming up. You're yeah. presenting. Yeah, the dissertation. Am I in any of the pictures that you're presenting? Uh, yes, you are. Right. You are in several of those pictures. Do you yeah, wanna, I'm you labeled, want, right? Do you want to give a shout out uh, about Project Success, which is the focus of my dissertation? It's an awesome program, and yeah, I love teaching out. it. I loved teaching it. Come on, give us give us what it stands for. For what does success stand for? Student Unified Curriculum Connecting English, Science, and Social Studies. <laughs> Jeez, he, he, yeah, he, he ta- really he taught it. You didn't know that I was going <laughs> to know that. Pretty confident no. he wasn't going to get that. Okay, for one thing, he taught Project Success for three years. I guess. And it is not connecting; it is combining. Uh, <laughs> so darn, you totally messed up. Well, connecting and combining are the same thing. Uh, Kelly Phillips, who coined the phrase or the name "project success," she would be disappointed with you. I don't think she would be. Anyway, oh, I, I am defending my dissertation in a I, week, so wish me luck. I have a picture there, right? 
Uh, no. Oh. What? You have an igno- oh. you have okay, an that's ridiculous. Oh, that's cool. No, that's yeah, cool. you know, you only spread it to another an entire school organization. Anyway. It's not a big deal. You me. are acknowledged, and as uh, is Mr. Siddons. I'm footnote number 123. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, anyway, so wish me luck, boys. Yeah. You're going to do you're great. You're going to do awesome. I can't w- wait to hear about can it. We, are we allowed to like have signs outside the lobby? No. No. I was thinking that we might get Dr. Henry Smith on the show Um Later, if if in the event that I successfully defend the dissertation, you guys could ask him questions about how terrible I am. <laughs> I thought that Get that the inside info. Fun. He's a former undersecretary of education. Oh, in the Department of Ed. He'd be a great guest. Cool. All right. Anyway, folks, thank you for joining us for Ed's Not Dead. Once again, you can reach me at RW Dodd. You can reach the show at Ed's Not Dead PC at CH Siddons and at Peter Crable. Uh, spread the word, spread the news about the best education podcast on the interweb. Ed's not dead. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks. <laughs>